Our New Testament reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in their passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So then, Remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is the hostility between us. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear now the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and his brother, John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them immediately. They left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words of Scripture this morning, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and to us in this very divided moment of American life, in this very divided moment of the church. Would you awaken our hearts to hear the story of Jesus and to experience him, that we might know how we might receive and hear his call to discipleship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, so far, uh, 2021 feels as strange and unsettling, maybe even a little bit more so than 2020, the year that none of us saw coming. The pandemic, the lockdown, of course, continues. The political, the cultural, the socioeconomic, the racial divisions in our country and in our, in, in our own community feel more per pronounced, perhaps, uh, than ever before. There's a second impeachment trial of the president and threats of continued violence in state capitals even uh, scheduled for today. A friend texted me this week asking, um, quote, what am I supposed to tell my kids who are wondering if we're going to be in a perpetual state of elevated conflict and outright hatred from now on? Seriously, I'm at a loss for how to parent. Another friend posted on Facebook following the violence in the Capitol last week, uh, she was attending a prayer group in her church on Zoom, and in following the prayer meeting, one of her friends in the group concluded that, well, we just need to have a separate country. In the words of Taylor Swift, I think, I think, I've, I think I've seen that film before, and I did not like the ending. The divide in the country is deep and wide, and it's also prevalent in the church this commingling of the Christian faith with American idealism, Republican varieties and democratic varieties seems to have tipped into a perverse kind of syncretistic religion that dishonors Jesus and seems to have completely lost sight of him and of the kingdom, the kind of kingdom that he promised, the politic, the common good that Jesus imagined that he talked about and that he also enacted in the own, his own community of his day and expects the church to continue. So over the next weeks, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very famous portion of the gospel account in Matthew, and we're going to be looking at this portion of the teaching as a lens for thinking about the kind of politic, that is, the kind of common life that Jesus imagined his kingdom was all about and that his kingdom would embody, and that those that followed him would participate in. And I would expect that as we go week to week in different parts of these particular texts and stories out of the life of Jesus, that each of us, regardless of where we find ourselves politically in whichever stance, or even regardless of how we're pursuing the good life for ourselves, I would expect that we would find the teaching of Jesus to be quite challenging to our taken-for-granted assumptions. So today we're looking or beginning with this call to discipleship, the message, 
and the work that Jesus embodied in that call uh, to discipleship. So let's think about that. So first, the message. The message is quite simply a message of repentance, which is a word that can be a little confusing and sometimes even gets a bad rap inside of our culture because of the way Christians have appropriated that particular word to speak very specifically about individualized sins and private behaviors that we do that may or may not be wrong and that we're called to sort of move away from. But here we should notice that Jesus, very much in the tradition of John the Baptist before him, continues to speak a message of repentance for the simple reason that the kingdom of heaven is at hand or near. Repentance most basically means to turn around in some literal or metaphorical way. So, for example, you're on a train headed to New York, but instead you find that you boarded the train to D.C., and who would want to go there these days, right? You need to get off the train headed to New York, or rather headed to D.C., and reboard a new train. That would be something of a way of thinking about this idea of repentance and the change of direction that Jesus has in mind. Again, we often think of repentance in these private ways, but Jesus has linked repentance very much to the advent or the presence, rather, of his kingdom, the nearness of his kingdom, that is, the rule of God long promised, the reign of God within our world in such a way that all of life, that all of human life begins to flourish everywhere and in every way. Interestingly, at the moment of Jesus' particular life, persons would have heard the message of repentance or the message of the kingdom, and their minds would have immediately jumped to politics because Israel was an occupied country by Rome, by the Roman Empire. And the peace that Rome promised and the peace that, the peace that was experienced inside of Rome was exceedingly limited to a very few persons of privilege. The Jewish community felt the oppression, the loss of freedom, the loss of religious freedom in many different ways. And internal to Israel, there were multiple political factions and religious factions that imagined different ways of what it would look like for us to faithfully wait for God's coming kingdom. And interestingly, Jesus begins to blow past them all by proclaiming something far greater and far wider than those in his immediate audience would have ever imagined. And while the crowds would have readily rallied around a pro-Jewish and Israel sort of political ideology, Jesus would later at the very near the end of his life, when he's on trial with Pilate, he would say very simply that his kingdom is not of this world as Pilate pressed into him with the question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus is telling us that his kingdom transcends, I think, every instantiation of politics that our world has ever known. God imagines something far greater than the Jewish politics or the Gentile politics of his day. And I think we should add for our own day the Republican or the Democratic versions of these things as they take shape inside of the United States, even though the evangelical church has seen fit in many ways to wed itself with different iterations of these political visions as their hope. God wants something greater for our world and for our country and all of its diversity. He wants us to flourish inside of his kingdom, as participants in his, of his kingdom, something that was far greater than we are able on our own and in our own resources to strategize. Repentance 
is about a realignment of our imaginations, of our heart, of our very selves with that which God wants, with that who God is, with that which God is doing. It's a way, if you want to imagine it with the metaphor earlier, it's about getting on the train that is pulling out of the station in the person of Jesus Christ. Get on board the train, we could say, that's moving in the direction that God is taking all of history. These days of political anxiety, the days of political disunity and violence even in our culture and insurrection, um, homeland terrorism. In these particular moments, it's a wonderful opportunity for Christians, for the church, to pull back and ask ourselves, what might Jesus be inviting us to repent of? How might we realign our own imaginations with the imagination of Jesus so that we begin to participate in the long arch of history? As Martin Luther King spoke of it in his day with regard to civil rights and justice, how might we participate in this larger story of history that Jesus has enacted and promised will one day be the reality that will flood the entirety of the earth when heaven and earth are united at his return. So how do you and I need to hear this invitation, if you will, to repent, to realign our imaginations, our hearts, and our lives with God and his vision for the world rather than all of the lesser visions and all of the lesser um, self-interested strategizing that goes on inside of our culture and our world today? How might we realign with Jesus in this invitation to repent? Second, Jesus doesn't simply leave us with a vision of his kingdom or a message about the coming of his kingdom or a desire that we would realign with it. He invites us into a discipleship internal to it. That in other words, we would follow him in such a way that we're with him in the coming of his kingdom in some real defined way, which is far greater than any mental assent to the truth of that which God is doing. Believing in Jesus is simply not enough. It's the beginning of something, but it's not the entirety of anything. Matthew gives us here a thumbnail sketch of Jesus' calling of these early disciples here, Peter and Andrew. He calls them to follow him, and so they leave their nets, and they follow Jesus. And then there's the story of James and John who are with their father by their boat, giving us this little brief imagination that these weren't simple fishermen, but these were persons who perhaps owned a fishing company of some sort. In other words, they're of a different socioeconomic strata. But Jesus similarly calls to them to follow him, and so they leave boat, and they leave father, the family business, and they begin to realign themselves with Jesus. And so on and, and so forth, this calling of disciples begins to happen. If we had a problem with the message of repentance, that we need some realignment of our imagination and our allegiance of heart, we might have a greater problem with the practice of real discipleship because we're called to be with Jesus in the midst of ordinary life as those who have left our nets, our boat, the family business in a sense. In other words, metaphorically at least, we're all called upon to realign our entirety of living in light of the priority of who Jesus is and what he's doing. When I was first early in my pastoral career, I was a pastor at Redeemer in New York City. Some of you know that part of my story. But I worked with a colleague, Francis Nelson, who's also an ordained minister in our denomination. 
And she um, was then on staff at Redeemer as well, and one of the community group directors, and she was on my team. And we had a conversation early on about discipleship. What is our work in terms of community groups? What do we want community groups that existed in our church of the time? How do we want them to form people and to think about their following of Jesus as disciples? And in the middle of this conversation, Francis must have heard me saying certain kinds of things that triggered some things for her, and she just sort of stopped me dead in my tracks, and she said, Tuck, discipleship is not information download. Sit with that for a moment. So often we think of discipleship as becoming a student of Jesus such that we take a class or we take a Bible course or maybe you go a little further and you take a certificate in sort of Christian theology or something. We study things, and that certainly was my own habit as one who had spent a lot of time in seminary and then later doing a PhD and then later thinking about the subject of Christian education and internal to the church. Discipleship is not the same thing as information download, because information download is never transformative of the way you and I live life. Discipleship can't be reduced to the exchange of ideas. It has to do with life on life. It has to do with relationships. It has to do with community and living together in such a way that we're with Jesus. Rowan Williams, in his wonderful little book, Being a Disciple, it's simple. If you've never read it, it's short. I would encourage you to pick up a copy and read it, especially during this particular series, perhaps. But he says discipleship has to do with staying with Jesus, or as Jesus urged his disciples later toward the end of his own life, of abiding with him. Discipleship has to do with continuing to be with Jesus, not just in a one-off way, but daily, frequently, staying near him, and letting his presence shape the way you and I begin to show up in our world, the way we show up in the world as disciples of Jesus, the way we show up as human beings. We could go on and say the way we show up as a friend or as a husband or a wife or a peer, or a colleague in the workplace, a business person, a lawyer, a teacher, a doctor, and just on and on, and dare I say, a politician. Letting the presence of Jesus in our lives reshape not just what we say or what we align ourselves with ideologically, but the way we are human in all of those places, in the likeness of Jesus. We see that here in this particular text, that Jesus invited the men here and then later the women who would begin to follow him as well as disciples. He invites them to be near him as he enacts the presence of the kingdom. So what does that look like in a world like ours, a world for him that was a world under occupation of Rome and a world in which there were many persons excluded just because of that occupation? occupation, but even internal to Israel, some of the way the religious values and practices had led to the exclusion even of Israelites. What we see Jesus doing is getting near the excluded. He gets near those who are diseased and who have sickness, and he heals them. He gets near those in spiritual darkness, and he delivers them from demons. He gets near those who are 
experiencing paralysis of some sort, and they begin to walk. He gets near the immoral. He gets near the sinners. He gets near the political traitors, uh, a.k.a. the tax collectors, who internal to that system weren't like our IRS, but rather they were people who were perceived to be in collusion with Rome itself. Jesus gets near all of these persons in these spaces of loss, and in that space, he invites the marginalized. He invites the voiceless to now have a voice. The disinherited of society, as Howard Thurman puts it, are brought near. They're inherited. They're brought near Jesus in such a way that he begins to liberate them out of these different and diverse forms of oppression and loss and experiences of brokenness and darkness, and he restores their agency, and he restores their sense of belonging and wholeness internal to their society so that where they may have felt cut off and invisible and unseen, they feel seen by Jesus because they are seen by Jesus and they are welcomed by Jesus. The outsider is brought in by Jesus, and Jesus brought his disciples into that enactment of the kingdom that was breaking near. So, as we think about our own discipleship, we definitely need to be thinking and asking questions about how we have left our nets and our boats, the family business, so to speak. In other words, have we begun in our lives to let Jesus' presence reshape lovingly the way you and I live inside of our vocations in their diversity of spaces so that we love the way he loved, so that we leverage our power the way Jesus leverages power, so that we welcome the outsider the way Jesus welcomed the outsider? What would it look like for you this morning to think about the call of discipleship on your life, not just as a need to understand the Christian message better, or the need to read more of the Bible, which of course is a wonderful thing, or the need even to pray more, which again is a wonderful thing, but what it would look like, what would it look like for you and for me to really take seriously the presence of Jesus as one who loves us and who has all authority and the one in whom all of history is moving to this great moment, this culminating moment, when heaven and earth unite forever in fullness and beauty, in which all of these little pictures that we saw in the life of Jesus happening become real, forever real. What would it be like for us to begin now to live on the right side of history, we could say? And that always means for the church and for its disciples that we begin to get near the brokenhearted and the broken in our society, whoever they are, the disinherited of our society, whoever they are, and of the world itself. And we get near them as bearers of hope and bearers of restoration because we have experienced the hope that Jesus has brought our stories that were left out but are brought near. And he's brought restoration to us in our life with God and into our life with one another. 
This is the work of the church, and it continues. And we see that at the very end of Matthew's gospel, at the conclusion of our gospel reading this morning. We read that snippet out of, uh, out of the very end of Matthew when it's the, you know, we think of this as the great commissioning of the church. And it's that beautiful spot when Jesus has gathered his disciples yet again, following the resurrection. And then Matthew beautifully says, but some still doubt it. I love the insertion of that, because what does it tell me that I don't have to be certain in the way that I sometimes imagine myself to need to be certain, to actually participate in the work of God's kingdom. But I'm called to just continually get near Jesus. Some doubted, but these same people, Jesus looked on them, and he just simply reminded him, reminded them and reminds us that history is moving in the direction of the supreme nature of his authority that has been given to him. All of history is moving in that direction, and he invites them to sort of participate in that. And what does it look like? Well, it looks like you will go out and you will baptize, and you will invite others into this same cycle of discipleship throughout the generations over and over again. So just imagine what that means. It means that all of the goodness that they would have experienced in the person of Jesus and his presence the times they'd shared meals, the table fellowship moments, the miraculous moments of hungry people being fed on the hillside, the moments of honest relationship when hard truth was spoken to the religious leaders, the self-righteous, the moment when the disciples themselves would need to be called. You imagine Peter's story of being told to get behind me, Satan, right? And so Peter called afresh to repentance, which would show up again in Peter's life as the Apostle Paul would later call him to repentance. In other words, repentance was such a common part of the human life in their life with Jesus. But they saw the hungry fed, the disinherited, inherited, and brought near in the coming of God's kingdom. And with all of that in their imagination, they're simply told, take that to the world. That is your calling. Go into the world with this message of repentance and this work, this demonstration of the coming of God's kingdom, and demonstrate the love of God that has come near in Jesus. Invite them into the same practices of repentance. And then Jesus simply reminds them yet again, for I am with you to the end of the age. So as we embark on this consideration of discipleship, of the politics of Jesus, I think each of us should expect that we will hear in this invitation moments when we think, I need to repent. <laughs> My ideas aren't aligned with God's ideas. I want things that he does, I want does things that he doesn't even promise. And so there's a realignment of ourselves with the promises of God here in this moment of discipleship. We will hear the call to repent, to turn around, to change trains. And let me urge you in those moments when it feels uncomfortable as we look into this sermon, don't dig your heels in. <laughs> Don't clench your fists around that which you already think you know. But open your hands, which is the appropriate posture of anyone who would follow Jesus. It is always to live with an open hand around that which we believe to be true so that we experience our neighbor with humility. And we experience those with whom we have difference with real humility that we might hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church because he is saying things to the church because Jesus said he was with us to the very end of the age. May God give us grace to hear what he's saying, to repent,
to follow him as disciples. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.